0: Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 25th of January 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott bringing us
1: Northern Exposure,
0: Exposure, which is what I think we have in the uh, studio.
1: You're a bit cold, Brian.
0: I am a bit cold, yes. Okay. I am a bit cold. Uh,
1: Well, don't worry. Uh, The lights will warm it up shortly, but uh, let's get... Warm things up with this then. Uh, so here's uh, legislation.gov.uk. Uh, the health, health Protection Coronavirus England number three regulations have been extended uh, until July. Uh, and uh, well, there wasn't too much noise about that. I think a couple of uh, small stories in the press over the weekend. Uh, and uh, this of course doesn't mean that the uh, lockdown itself has been extended. Brian, it just means that the government has, well, David, maybe I should bring you into the programme at this point. Does this mean that the government has the, uh, the legal right to extend the lockdown as it sees fit until at least the 31st of July? Well, so it's
2: claiming to have. Um, legal rights are all based obviously on the premise that the, the threat from the virus is such that all of our normal rights can be, can be removed because uh, it's a life and death situation. And of course, if that's a lie, then everything that the government has done since the very start is unlawful and uh, some people could be going to jail. But as they seem to be claiming it's going to be legal until July to imprison
1: us more. Uh, Yes, indeed. But they're going to imprison us in our minds more by ramping up the fair even further. So let's uh, start off with uh, new variants and uh, Matt Hancock over the weekend, 77 cases of South African COVID variant have been found in the UK. Nine of the Brazilian variant uh, and experts uh, warning that new vaccines might be needed every year. And I'm saying that really this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because, uh, of course, the model that they're aiming for here is very much the flu vaccine uh, model. So uh, uh, that's that's what the mail was saying. It was also in other uh, media as well. But uh, up in Scotland, David, uh, here's the Herald Vaccine fears as South African coronavirus hits Scotland. So it's all about fear. It's
2: all about fear. Uh, three identified cases. All while coronavirus variant first detected in South Africa, which is f- which it is feared is more resistant to the COVID vaccine. The Herald has learned. Details emerged as the health secretary, that's Matt Hancock, UK health secretary, said there was evidence that the South African variant, uh, although we are not sure of this data reduces by about 50% the vaccine efficiency. So believe that, if you will, that is evidence, but we're not sure of the data, and it might be bad, uh, and it might not, but be afraid.
1: Be very afraid, but it doesn't end there. They uh, expressed then, uh, government accused of using COVID fear tactics to inflate anxiety levels of British public. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but the UK column was accusing the government of using COVID fear tactics to inflate inv- anxiety levels of the British public. I think in March or April of 2020, on the basis of the Spy B minutes to SAGE group, uh, basically saying that that's exactly what they were going to do?
2: Well, this is the uh, the Express has caught up with us. I think it was either April or early uh, early May we reported on this, but now the uh, world is getting out to the readership of the Express. A group of 47 psychologists have claimed Uh, This amounts to a strategic decision to inflate the fear levels of the British public, which is exactly what we reported back in May, um, which states it's ethically murky, yes, uh, and then some, and has left people too afraid to leave their homes for medical appointments, which is very true and is obviously killing people. Uh, The the group led by former NHS consultant psychologist Dr Gary Sidley, uh, the experts have written to the British Psychological Society claiming the strategy is morally questionable.
0: Yes, morally questionable. I think it it goes beyond being morally questionable, doesn't it? Well, morally uh, questionable. This is a psychological attack on on the, the British public. It is an attack. That's the reality of it. But I think we've got to stress that it is really great to see these psychologists now coming forward to question what's going on, to have professionals coming to the fore and saying, we've got questions to ask, we're not happy with what's going on. This is a very good sign. And those people should get support from the wider public. Uh,
1: David, the article goes on to say, in response, the government has vehemently denied using covert techniques. Well, of course, the techniques haven't been covert at all. They've been absolutely in our faces.
2: Well, this is it. I mean, so the government's denying something they weren't accused of, which is not tremendously convincing. Uh, they said the campaigns have been transparent and necessary to set out clear instructions. But they've admitted, admitted to communicating public information campaigns at a rate of 17 a week. 17 a week! Um, during the peak of the, of the pandemic in order to reach an estimated 95% of adults. And this is all relating to the minutes of uh, the SAGE group meeting on the 22nd of March 2020, as we reported back in April and May.
1: Yes, indeed. Where does, where does that take us? Well, COVID-2020 saw the most excess deaths since World War II, is what the BBC was reporting just over a week ago, in, at least on their main uh, UK website. Uh, we called that fake news. Uh, and even in the uh, article, uh, it went on to make the point that, that uh, uh, once age and size of population are taken to account, into account, Uh, are at their worst level for a little over a decade only. Well, in fact, actually, once age and size of population are taken into account, if you look over 20 years rather than 10, then 2020 only appears ninth on that list. Uh, But David, uh, in Scotland, the BBC is up to the same trick. Uh, COVID in Scotland, peacetime excess deaths highest since 1891.
2: Yes, I think this may be the most grievous example of fake news that the BBC have ever done. It's absolutely appalling. So it just, it's worth just noting how they've done this. Uh, so the figures say, show there were 6,324 excess deaths, 11% higher than the five-year average. So they're calculating excess deaths based on the fi- the preceding five-year average. Now, we know that... Uh, from the information published in the UK column last week, that uh, the death rate in the UK has been falling steadily until about eight years ago, when it stopped falling uh, at the end of the uh, um, the uh, Great um, Recession and the the financial crash. So we've got it then flatlined. So the the five year average, for the first time in living memory, is actually uh, is actually steady rather than continuously falling. So when you're comparing current figures back five years only, uh, you're getting an entirely false result. Uh, they then fail to correct for population size and fail to correct for, uh, for age profile. So this is simply looking at the stats to see how a headline can be milked to frighten people. It's completely deceptive and uh, completely without foundation. It's, it's fake news of the most grievous sort.
0: And, and David, I, I, I wonder, I just, I just noted the Russian flu, that going back to 1891, those nasty Russians were at it again. I'd like to see a bit more information on the basis for that classification as Russian, fu- uh, as Russian flu.
1: Um, okay, and, uh, the, but the Telegraph here reporting more children admitted to hospital for mental health than medical reasons, leading paediatricians says.
2: Yeah, so we're seeing here the effect of the fear. We've been, we've been running fear consistently. We're telling people they're going to die. We're, 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 we're spinning figures in, in deceptive and, and confusing ways to convince people they're going to die, convince them not to leave their homes. And it's having an effect. It's having a dreadful effect. So we're, we're seeing here for the first time, this is Professor um, Russell Viner, uh, President of the Royal College, College of Pediatrics and Child Health said that the phenomenon that, that paediatricians have seen across the UK is the start, uh, seen since the start of the pandemic, and this is entirely new. The number of children admitted to hospital for mental health reasons now outstrips those for medical conditions. This is appalling. We are frightening our children into illness.
1: Yes, uh, and, of course, uh, we need to highlight once again uh, Dr. Bruce Scott's
0: uh, fantastic article on the UK column, Psychological Attack on the UK. And- anecdotal addition to that is that uh, a few days ago i was speaking to a lady who works in counseling and mental health she said that she was absolutely swamped and that all of her professional colleagues also working in mental health were swamped and other friends who are connected to mental health across the country were saying that there was an unprecedented um, number of people coming forward with mental health problems as a result of lockdown and when i gently said well we just don't seem to be seeing the government showing any attention to this she said no it's unbelievable that the government doesn't appear interested at all so that's uh, just a um, straw poll of one lady but she was clearly very concerned and she was particularly interested in why the government was showing no interest in the damage its lockdown policies were doing
1: yes um, well, let's head over to uh, Davos then, because uh, the Davos agenda starts today. Uh, this is the equivalent of the annual Davos get-together, uh, which is probably more significant now than Bilderberg uh, and some of these other meetings are these days. Uh, but, uh, of course, they can't have a real uh, conference this year, Brian, because of COVID. They've got It's a virtual event. They're hosting the real Davos event, the real face-to-face Davos event, uh, I think in September, October time. Uh, in the Far East. Uh, So what are they talking about? Well, let's just have a quick look. This is just for today. Uh, So Trust in Vaccines, How to Build Confidence, an exclusive expert briefing on the global implications of the COVID-19 crisis and the road ahead. As mass vaccination campaigns roll out across the globe, surveys indicate that only 73% of people would get a COVID-19 vaccine if available, uh, with the number as low as 40% in some countries. So this is of great concern to them. They want to do something about that. Uh, What else? A new coalition for workplace racial justice. Uh, They're launching that. Uh, then we've got uh, targets and pathways to economic transformation. Um, this is, of course, the Great Reset uh, economy. The, the New Green Deal is very much uh, part of the agenda here uh, for today. Building net zero cities uh, is on the, the agenda for today. I think that was this morning as well. Uh, but uh, the keynote here, Healthy Futures, building crisis resilient healthcare systems in a post-COVID world. Um, so these are the types of topics that they're talking about. And this this last one is quite interesting um, because, of course, uh, the Third World in particular getting a bit upset about the fact uh, that they can't get access to COVID-19 vaccines and drugs. Uh, they are have been calling since last October for particularly the Indian and South African governments, uh, eight other countries as well, asking the World Trade Organization to encourage uh, the lifting of patents and other intellectual property rights for COVID-19 diagnostics, drugs, and vaccines for the duration of the pandemic, uh, the World Trade Organization hasn't really moved on this. They're, they're not making a decision. Uh, the UK, France, Germany, and the United States are against it. Uh, they say that uh, that they have been doing deals with big drug producers, uh, and therefore there's no real need for these for drugs to be uh, made available to the third world. Uh, at at less cost, um, so really we don't we want to monopolize pharma. It's all about the new health uh, infrastructure that's being built. Well, look, uh, let's have a look at this tweet that Corey Morningstar put out this morning because I think this is really insightful. Uh, April nineteen, uh, sorry, April 9th twenty twenty, World Economic Forum website. We're conducting argu- arguably the largest psychological experiment ever. January twenty twenty one injecting humans with mRNA technology. We're conducting arguably the largest human biology experiment ever. Um, So what's she talking about? Well, first of all, on April the 9th, 2020, the World Economic Forum had this article, lockdown is the world's biggest psychological experiment, and we will pay the price. Um, I recommend people go and read that. Uh, But then she was making this point that this is really the uh, uh, the 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 subject of of Davos at the moment the vaccine revolution um, the headline in Time for this month's Time magazine mRNA technology gave us first the first COVID nineteen vaccines it could also upend the drug industry and so if anybody wants to know why intellectual property rights aren't being waived for the third world at the moment is because the drug companies see this absolutely as a literal uh, revolution in the uh, in the healthcare market so this article saying. RNA can also be engineered, as Jennifer Doudna and others discovered, to target genes for editing using the CRISPR system uh, adapted from bacteria. RNA can guide scissor-like enzymes to specific sequences of DNA in order to eliminate or edit a gene. More controversially, it says in this article, no criticism, just controversy, uh, more controversially, CRISPR could be used to create designer babies uh, with inheritable genetic changes. Uh, The COVID-19 pandemic that killed more than, they claim, killed more than 1.8 million people in 2020 will not be the final plague. However, thanks to the new RNA technology, our defenses against future plagues are likely to be immediately, sorry, immensely faster and more effective. So uh, I don't know what your thoughts are, Brian and David, but uh, clearly at Davos, they are very excited about this new prospect of immense, uh, unlimited perhaps,
0: profits available through uh, these new technologies. Uh, the profits there of course billions of profits did I catch that correctly so we're not a pandemic we're plague this is a plague Uh, yes right so without any any real data to back up that new classification of the fear factor we're now into future plagues
1: Uh, David uh, have you any thoughts on that
2: it'll be a perpetual plague you know as as in the war in 1984 was 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 never meant to be won um, what we've learned from Big Pharma is that none of their campaigns against disease are ever meant to be won; They're meant to be perpetual. And this one, which is based on so little and so much fear and so much hype, uh, stands to make them so much profit that this too will become perpetual. Um, and uh, it will be left to those with courage to actually ask the question about where's the proof? Where's the risk? Where's the assessment of effectiveness of the treatments, uh, and uh, where is uh, the proper assessment of the long-term effects on the population? Remember, after seventy-five years, we still don't know if the decision to um, to vaccinate the elderly against influenza actually helps anyone at all.
1: Um, well, indeed. Uh, but finally, on Davos, then uh, well. I'm not sure whether this is Cointelegraph or whether it should be Cointel or something like that. But anyway, anyway, Cointelegraph here, the headline is uh, cryptocurrency makes World Economic Forum's Davos agenda. Uh, and they're getting very exciting. The digital currencies um, are now very much uh, on the list. Um, and uh, well, of course, we know that uh, the uh, European Union in particular uh, is very, very keen to get the digital euro uh, off the ground, the Bank of England, the same for most other currencies around the world. Digital is the way we're going, David, and of course, digital means unlimited. Digital means unlimited because it's not even it's not even limited by the number
2: of printing presses that you have, as it used to be. Normally, if a printing press broke down during a hyperinflation, the, the inflation rate would slow. This isn't going to happen now. Um, the the money supply and the and the value of money is in for, shall we say, uh, a, 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 very, a very severe test uh, because we've destroyed our economies in many ways. We've been printing money to cover the gaps. And, and, and the politicians and governments are now thinking that they have, they have the magic money tree. They have the ability to simply buy people because we can print the money out of nothing and we can buy loyalty. We can pay people to stay at home. We might even pay them for positive COVID tests. We can pay them for anything we want. Uh, without having to worry about where the money comes from uh, until eventually it, it will all collapse. So when it collapses, we need something to put in its place. This is a big part of the Great Reset. Uh,
0: yes, indeed. Uh, I think you might have lost your earphone there. Oh, you picked it up. Okay, that's fine. Uh, right. Now,
1: let's uh, move on to this. Uh, this is the, uh, a report from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. It's called Electrifying the UK and the Want of Engineering. And uh, i Strongly recommend people have a look at it. Uh, we're going to look at uh, electric cars here because uh, this is the uh, p- one of the points that they're making. Um, so we want to electrify the UK. This is, of course, all to do with the Green New Deal. Um, so let's just look at some uh, statistics. Uh, the equivalent energy stored in a conventional car filled with approximately 10.5 gallons of fuel uh, needs a, a battery the weight of at least half a ton to make up for, for that uh, if we replace the... the uh, gasoline with uh, with uh, electricity. The production of those batteries ex- is extremely energy intensive and includes mining and processing huge amounts of copper, aluminium and lithium. Okay, so this next batch of stats is just for the UK. Okay, this is conversion of the UK car fleet as it stands at the moment. Okay, would require 200% of the annual global production of cobalt. It would require 75% of the annual global production of lithium carbonate. It would require more than 50% of the annual global production of copper. And it would require around 100% of the annual global production of neodymium. Okay, so that's another rare earth. Um, Let's look at the EU then. Conversion of the EU car fleet by 2050. This is the goal of 2050 for this. Uh, 26 million... Electric vehicles produced annually would be required to replace the EU car fleet by 2050. Uh, 1700%, that's 1,700% of the annual global production of cobalt would be required to do that. 600% of the annual global production of lithium carbonate. 400% of the annual global production of copper. uh, And 800% of the annual global production of neodymium. Now, the point here is that uh, neodymium is only mined in China, because China is the only country, it seems, that is prepared to put up with the pollution that is generated by that. But my question then is, where are these raw materials going to come from? Now, everybody that's watching this must recognize that they can't come from anywhere because they don't exist or we don't have the capability to mine them. Uh, or if we do mine them, we're going to destroy the planet, which seems counterproductive to the narrative that the Green Agenda is trying to pursue. Um, But um, if we move to electricity uh, as the main source of of, uh, energy for cars, well, where does that leave us with respect to electricity for heating? Uh, Because at the same time, we're expected to replace gas boilers by you know from twenty twenty five onwards, and by twenty forty, we're not going to be putting gas boilers into new build homes anymore. Uh, this is an older article, but this is still on the uh, on the books as far as the government is concerned. They still want to do this, um, and uh, this is why Boris Johnson was recently talking about heat pumps uh, when for new build homes and so on. Um, but on top of that. Let's consider this. I haven't shown this graphic in quite some time and I haven't updated it for the latest situation with respect to the amount of money that's been borrowed uh, for, by the government for covering the cost of COVID. The point that I want to highlight on this graph is, is if you look at the situation with state pensions, uh, there's a 5.2 trillion pound black hole uh, with respect to state pensions. Now, the way that the British pension system works, it's a Ponzi scheme. It requires uh, people to be earning money, producing tax, Paying tax to the government so that the government can then pay that out again uh, in pensions to old age pensioners. Um, but there's the obligations that are in place already for the current population come to £5.2 trillion, and that's basically unpayable. So where, what happens to pensions? Do we reduce the amount of pensions or are we reducing the population in order to make sure that we don't have that demand on pensions? Um, and then, of course, we've got this: education, this is the mail. Uh, Now children might not return to school until after Easter. Galvin Williamson will not rule out pupils going back into classrooms after February half term within days. Um, And so what are we doing here? We're destroying uh, the education of an entire generation. Uh, The point that Patrick Henningsen has made to me is, of course, even if they stop doing this now, it's going to take 12 years for the effects of this damage to work their way through the education system before people are getting a normal education again. Um, And... uh, So if we don't have enough raw materials to generate, to to replace uh, the petrol driven cars that we've got, we don't have enough money to pay the pensions and we aren't producing an education system. My question, David, is what does that mean for the economy of the country? What does that mean for the population of the country? Um, Because what we're seeing here is a policy agenda at work, which is basically unstated. The press isn't covering this in any way, shape or form. And at no point in that conversation did we even talk about how we generate the electricity, even if we could build the cars in the first place, how we could uh, generate the electricity to, to, uh, to, to fuel those cars. It's pretty clear to me we won't be travelling, we won't be in work, and we won't be living long enough to require a pension. We probably won't have the cars either.
2: Well, in, in a word, what it means is serfdom. And serfs don't have cars. Serfs don't travel beyond their village. Serfs often have quite short lives, um, and serfs work almost all of those years that they're alive. So all of the benefits of the Industrial Revolution, all of the benefits that we have spent 150 or 200 years building from nothing, um, have to be removed in order for that agenda to be rolled out. Uh, otherwise, it makes no sense whatsoever.
0: Well, this is, this is where I come from, David. Um, it's easy for many people to assume that, okay, we're going we're to make the change to electric cars and therefore we're going to need these materials. But I actually think the policy is going to be, absolutely, you are not going to be able to have a car. If you see um, new developments in urban areas now, the first little trick they do is they don't provide car parking there's no driveway there's not even necessarily the ability to park on the road so this has been going on for many years now and the objective has clearly been to force cars out of inner city areas with no replacements in many occasions particularly if the accommodation is um, low income accommodation so we we can see through these policies the agenda is to stop people traveling the road charging systems are all are all virtually in place now if you've watched all of the chaos across britain's motorways and uh, you've seen the purple cabling lying along the side of the roads that has been all part of the fiber optic setup for road charging and that's what all the big gantries are in place for so shortly we're going to start to see that coming in to cut down on um, inter-urban inter-city travel via the motorways
1: Um, Okay, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, you can join us there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, But also, uh, please share our stuff um, as it appears on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, BitChute and uh, now on DLive as well uh, and in other places uh, upcoming. Now, a lot of people uh, sending this through to us, so we should, uh, we just wanted to let everybody know about it. If you haven't seen it, the great reopening, um, the poster says we are the 99% reopen your business. So this is for Saturday, this coming Saturday, Saturday the 30th of uh, January. Uh, and they're saying this ends when we say no. Uh, there's a telegram group uh, for anybody that wants to get involved on screen at the moment. Um, and uh, well, I, I don't know who's behind it, but I think it's, uh, it's probably a very good uh, initiative.
0: We need to start seeing people pushing back against this. Well exactly because until people say no it will continue. Now we, we are getting some really um, very interesting emails into the UK column since um, a curfew was in place. This one caught our eye this morning um, so let's talk through this one. Um, First of all, apologies for using your own email as a contact, or I apologize for using your own email as a contact. Today, Monday, the 25th of January, 2021, my partner in the public sector Wales has been requested to submit vehicle registration details in case there is an interruption emergency in connection with the supply of fuel. uh, They are also being advised that by doing this, they can see if it's you and being correctly supplied that it's you being correctly supplied fuel at the pump and the person who sent this in has said they'd like to ask has anyone else had this type of approach so the the only details that we know is that this is public sector somewhere in the expanse of wales and this is a very interesting thing because what does this represent that somebody in the public sector knows that there's going to be further lockdown with fuel shortages along the way except for so-called key workers
1: yes well that, that's a very good question uh, of course in Wales at the moment the lockdown says that you're not allowed to be uh, more than five years five miles, miles away yeah. from your home uh, yeah. so maybe that's part of it uh, but uh, I'm very interested in this notion that supply chains are in some way going to be disrupted
0: Yeah, so anybody who's got any information, certainly anybody who's received an equivalent communication, if you can send us anything at all to uh, support or suggest that this is a one-off case, we'd be interested in hearing from you.
1: Um, Well, here's uh, Jonathan Van Tam, the Deputy Chief Scientific Officer. He was writing in The Telegraph on Sunday. uh, And, uh, well, he had this to say, uh, vaccines do offer the way out of the pandemic and a return to life as we knew it, uh, really, Well, he says that in one sentence and then a couple of sentences later, he says, no vaccine has ever been 100% effective. So no one will have 100% protection from the virus. So which is it? Uh, Are we going to be getting back to the old normal or not? I suspect not. I believe not. But uh, he uh, clearly isn't quite sure. Uh, He goes on to say, really importantly, we do not yet know the impact of the vaccine on transmission of the virus. So even after you've had both doses of the vaccine, you may still give COVID to someone else and the chains of transmission will then continue. So it seems to me absolutely clear uh, that the first sentence was a lie. We will not be getting back to the life that we knew uh, because uh, even with this so-called vaccine, um, we're still likely to be able to give COVID to someone else. Um, Now, (laughs) the government has been maintaining that there is such a thing as asymptomatic spreaders uh, and they've been maintaining it very, very hard over the last several months despite the fact that uh, the largest uh, scientific study uh, on this, which took place in uh, Wuhan, uh, showed that really there was no such thing as asymptomatic spreaders, unless of course you have a dual dose vaccine and you give one dose of it, uh, and then you wait to see whether uh, that creates asymptomatic spreaders, because of course the vaccine doesn't provide real immunity, it only uh, pushes down on the symptoms, So you're asymptomatic uh, having had the vaccine, if the vaccine works at all. Um, And uh, uh, you then, as Van Tam has said in this uh, article, may then become uh, a a spreader yourself.
0: Uh, I just wanted to say, Mike, is he not telling the truth or is the man not got the intellectual ability to understand the words coming out of his own mouth? uh, Well, Is, is 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 he stupid is really what we need to ask. Is he so stupid that he doesn't understand what he's saying? Or is this a deliberate political lie in order to get this agenda across? Which Uh, is it? I
1: I think it's the second of those. And I think it's the second of those because it was a written article. Therefore it was considered, the words were considered. It wasn't him giving a presentation of live stream off the cuff. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, then uh, on Sky TV, uh, Dr. Rosie Shar was on. She's from the Doctors Association in the UK. Uh, And she had this to say about uh, the vaccine.
2: It would be great if we could say, yes, they're going to have some level of immunity that will continue after that three week dose. But think about the worst case scenario that after three weeks, that immunity just wanes completely. Or maybe if we then give the booster at 12 weeks, that's just not good enough. The fact is that people are being vaccinated now and they're being put into what is effectively an unregulated, unlicensed trial whereby they're receiving this vaccination on the understanding that then they don't know what's going on.
1: So that's pretty clear, David, and she's absolutely right. It is an unregulated trial because, of course, the the temporary, the temporary approval by the MHRA was on the basis of Uh, Two doses three weeks apart. And the uh, clinical trials, as far as they go, uh, and we don't have any of the actual data from those yet from the Pfizer trials, uh, the clinical trials were based on uh, two doses three weeks apart. So she's absolutely right. This is effectively an unregulated, uh, unapproved clinical trial that's going on at the moment.
2: Well, yes. Uh, I would point out that there has never been any vaccine where we've got uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials to show that it's safe and effective, let alone the entire vaccine schedule. So the entire vaccine program could be viewed as an enormous unlicensed trial, and this is just the most recent and perhaps most grievous example of it. Uh, but she is correct.
1: Uh, She is correct. Well, (laughs) let's bring in uh, Professor Anthony Harnland then, who's the deputy uh, chair of the JCVI, the uh, uh, Joint Committee on uh, Vaccination and Immunisation. And he said, oh, you don't need to worry because there's no real evidence uh, that a quicker follow-up dose is more effective. Well, that's true because there's no evidence at all for any of this. Uh, There are no proper clinical trials to provide any evidence. So, Okay. No real evidence that a quicker dose, uh, that a quicker follow-up dose is more effective. He went on to say, we do believe you should have a second dose, but we do believe that that can be delayed, uh, right? On the basis of what? On the basis of nothing. So this is the deputy chair of the JCVI, who really has, is making statements again, Brian, which can only be considered a lie because he has no data on which to... Well, it's all based on what he
0: believes. I believe a lot of things, but if we come down to the uh, um, virus and virus transmissions, then my professional knowledge is very limited, but these people are supposedly very knowledgeable, but he's only talking about his beliefs. So something's wrong, isn't it?
1: Yes. Now, uh, David, the question then of uh, whether uh, the vaccine creates COVID itself. um, Well, Israel has something to say about this. Yes, Israel's a
2: very interesting example because Israel has pushed on with the, with the vaccine program more rapidly, far more rapidly, than any other nation in the world. I think the, the UK is second or third in those, uh, in, in, in those league tables, but Israel's far, far ahead. Uh, so they've, they've, been, they've been pushing hard with the vaccine and rolling it out amongst the population. This is one of the, uh, the headlines that have resulted. Um, from uh, Israeli National News, 4,500 people diagnosed with COVID after getting the first vaccine dose. Uh, So the uh, Dr. um, El-Rai Price noted that 17%, this is one in six, of the severely ill patients who are currently hospitalized in Israel have actually received the first dose of the vaccine before the hospitalization. That's... um, the data shows that 4,500 people have been diagnosed with coronavirus after having received the first vaccine dose, 375 of whom have been hospitalised due to the disease. Um, of those hospitalised, 244 were hospitalised in the first week after the vaccination, 124 in the second week, and seven, mo- seven more than 15 days from when they received the vaccine. The number of verified cases has reached a new high and uh, have passed the point of 9,000 positive tests. There's never been such a figure. Uh, and she blames the British mutation. So we're afraid of the South African and the Brazilian mutation. In Israel, they're afraid of the British mutation is spreading into the community, not just in people who have returned from England. Uh, there's no doubt the increase in morbidity due to the mutation, she added, uh, clarifying that the the morbidity rates uh, would not be brought down quickly. So she's saying there's a big problem here. And it would appear on the surface that the vaccine. Is less effective than one might have hoped.
1: Uh, what about in India?
2: Well, India is very interesting. So this is a this is a local paper from, from two of the Indian states, uh, uh, the, the, the the Telugu states. Um, that's Andhra Pradesh and uh, Telangana. So they're saying is a, a series of deaths in frontline workers' communities who took vaccinations have been raising tensions. Uh, Within four days in these two states, um, four deaths which are now turned into main concern in the medical communities in the states. So they report here a 42-year-old health worker took one shot and died within hours after getting vaccinated. Um, The suspicious death toll reached four on Sunday. Um, They also report that the the death of health workers who administered vaccine uh, set new tensions in the workers who are yet to be... uh, Who, sorry? The death of health workers who are administered vaccine set new tensions in the workers who are yet to be inoculated. A severe headache and chest pain are common symptoms. Uh, the government and doctors are making it clear that the vaccination has nothing to do with the deaths. We hear this all the time, but increasingly there are concerns raised. Now, there, there's the doctors and the, the, the government saying there's nothing to see here. Uh, but elsewhere in India, uh, there are doctors speaking out. So this is uh, from Outlook uh, magazine uh, asking the question, how safe is it to have sex after you take COVID vaccine? Experts advise caution. Uh, so they note here that one of the recruitment criteria for male volunteers uh, with reproductive potential says the use of condoms to ensure effective contraception with a female partner to refrain from sperm donation from the first vaccination until at least three months after the last vaccination is a requirement of the trial. Now, what they're asking is, if that's a requirement of the trial on which the safety case for the vaccine was made, should it be a requirement of the rollout of the vaccine? Uh, So Dr. Uh, Prakash uh, Kothari, uh, renowned sexologist, says, quote, we don't know uh, the teratogenic effects, that's abnormal fetal development effects, of a vaccine as it's too early to investigate that. However, if such a condition has been imposed on the volunteers of the clinical trial, it indicates that there could be a probability. Uh, To what extent, we don't know, because we have rushed the vaccine through without investigating it. And he goes on to say that that there are instances in the past where drugs have caused deformities in newborns, and such drugs were withdrawn later on. He adds, so I suggest that all population, which have a productive age group, must be advised and be cautioned to use contraceptives for one year after receiving the vaccine.
1: That that's been um, problematic if I, we're expected to receive the vaccine every year.
2: Well, well quite. I think that's sure sec- <laughs>
0: I... Go
1: ahead.
2: <laughs> and a second, a second Indian doctor, uh, no, uh, uh, a doctor uh, Betty, uh, who's a, a gynecologist. Uh, he was critical about uh, the process. He said rushing a, vac- rushing a vaccine uh, is completely a political agenda, and it's nothing to do with healthcare management. Since vac- vaccines are still at the experimental stage, even in the ongoing vaccination drive, I think the condition to use condoms to ensure effective contrac- contraception applies to all the beneficiaries. So he's agreeing, and he's saying this was a requirement of the test of the testing that that, that verified the vaccine was safe, as it's been and it should, be, it should be applied to the population receiving the vaccine. And, of course, it has not been. So these, this is two doctors speaking out here. And, of course, there are, as people who, who are familiar with what's currently circulating on the Internet, hundreds and hundreds of medical professionals raising concerns from all sorts of different angles and all sorts of different perspectives and different specialisms about the safety, necessity, and efficacy of the current vaccine program.
1: Yes. Um, well, let's uh, move on to back to the UK then, and to Scotland, in fact, and uh, the number of people who are confirmed to have died uh, of of rather than with COVID nineteen. And uh, so, you want to highlight a, a frame of information answer from Grampian.
2: Yeah, just a little data point here because it's 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 necessary to keep a handle on just what is happening, what the reality is. So, this is Grampian NHS board. It serves Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, and uh, and that's a population of just over half a million. So the Freedom of Information request asked how many COVID deaths uh, from February to November. And it, when the answer came back, it, it clarified it was up to the 25th of November. So in this half million population, uh, they listed deaths where COVID 19 is the sole cause of death as confirmed 15 and suspected 5. Uh, and that's in the entire quote, pandemic for the entire year. So it, it, it just is another data point where we're talking about something which for the, health, for the healthy population is, uh, whatever you think it is and whatever you think it isn't, is of very small importance in terms of the risk of, of, of death or serious injury. And against this, we're doing all of the shutdown, we're causing the mental health crisis, we're causing the economic collapse uh, all of which will cause la- cost line, um, and it just it just illustrates the nature of the the decisions that have been made by the government and the illogicality and unscientific nature of the reasoning. Yes,
0: and uh, David, when I see that uh, data that you put up on the screen, I instantly thought of the statistics that came out of the um, uh, came out of N- NHS Cornwall as a result of um, uh, a nurse uh, care assistant speaking out, Shelley Tasker, and if I remember rightly, it was those sorts of levels of COVID figures in the whole of Cornwall, five people in the hospitals uh, who who had died. I haven't got those figures in front of me, but I know that we're talking about a parity of, at least parity of figures here. And of course, what was the response that this lady has got to be, Effectively crushed and silenced by the NHS for daring to release data, which was data that the public were entitled to get anyway. So this censorship.
2: Absolutely, and, the, and one of the reasons that we, we are reporting, one of the reasons we are reporting doctors speaking out in India and speaking out in Germany and speaking out in in America is it's so difficult. I mean, many brave souls are doing it in the UK as well, but they're doing it. Um, against a huge amount of pressure, threats, uh, threats of loss of jobs, threats of loss of career um, from uh, our own NHS. Um,
1: OK, so let's move on then. Uh, and what's Richard L- Littlejohn been talking about? Uh, headline in the mail this weekend, don't clean your teeth, save the NHS, and look forward to COVID Britain in 2024.
2: So, yes, Littlejohn here is, take, is taking the mickey, and, and, and God bless him for that. He says that he writes, the date is March 1st, 2024, and Britain is about to enter its fifth year of lockdown. Despite the entire population being vaccinated every six months and the death toll from COVID-19 falling to zero, scientists are still warning that it's too early to ease restrictions. And the old Bailey anti-lockdown campaigner, Piers Corbyn, is jailed for life after being found guilty of failing to wear a mask in his own bathroom while cleaning his teeth. Corbyn was arrested during a dawn raid by armed police, executing a warrant under the new. Contagious Diseases Safety of Ablutions Serious Offences Act. Uh, And he continues, A civic-minded neighbour using night vision binoculars rang Scotland Yard's dedicated COVID NARP line after spotting the maskless Corbin through a frosted glass window spitting toothpaste into the sink and rinsing it down the plug hole. Despite the fact there's no evidence of anyone falling ill after contracting a toothpaste-related COVID variant, scientists have warned that if a single droplet of human saliva contaminates the water supply, it could result in the death of hundreds of millions of people. Uh, at, at, at yesterday's five o'clock news conference, Prime Minister Boris Johnson declared that the blanket policy of stay home, stop cleaning your teeth, protect the NHS has been a roaring success.
0: To, to, which, <laughs> to which, David, I say I don't like to be a oh, killjoy. It's... And it's good to have the humour. But the bit that I always come back to is the fact that little John clearly thinks that the events he can see happening are crazy they're just ridiculous they're nonsense and therefore he can come out with his black humor what he doesn't understand is that the crazy mixed messages are fully part of the psychological attack which is the government is carrying out in order to interfere with people's thinking and their mental health so Whilst I applaud him for making us laugh, at least with reading that article, I'm afraid I can't help thinking that little John still does not understand what's really coming down the pipeline, and he needs a bit of public attention to help him get onto the right uh, way of thinking. But maybe I'm being a bit tough.
1: Where does that take us?
0: Well, it takes us to the independent, and uh, I've been paying attention to, to what's reported, and I catch up. Uh, little things. Here's part of an article that The Independent was uh, pushing out, talking about uh, films coming out, talking about uh, viral epidemics and lockdowns, and uh, some of them it was praising and some it wasn't. But this is the end of the particular article, and it said the film was written, shot and wrapped in a few months and is bursting with cameos since so many high-profile actors were essentially out of work. But even if the reviews haven't been stellar critics have conceded that it still shows a brutal honesty about the cyclical strain of endless bread baking and stilted facetime conversions conversations as, uh, uh, conversations as polygons uh, quincy lagarde notes locked down might just be the most realistic depiction of the early days of covid so suddenly out of nowhere we're getting all of these films now i just noticed that in this Uh, paragraph here we're simply not at the stage where we can process the full weight of the pandemic but there are ways cinema can comfort and acknowledge the reality of the now with a dash of humor horror or plain sincerity if you just put that tag on the screen Mike because the question is David um, how do we use horror to comfort the public and if that is um, If that's a bit of a clash in that man's mind, the journalist's mind, a bit of cognitive dissonance, um, we're we're looking at breakdown. We can't even have a reporter that understands the words that he's putting on the the paper.
2: I I have no answer to that, um, Brian. Um, I don't understand how horror would be comforting in any way. And if you're talking about a situation which in reality is horrific, why? depicting horror uh, in a fictional setting um that, that's related to it would help um i've not not got the fog here.
0: yeah well i'll let people think about that but if you if you do look at what the uh, media is saying and printing uh we're finding more and more of these bizarre little contradictions as the journalists can't really make any sense of the world around them and can't rationalize their own so-called analysis. Let's hop across to the States, and I couldn't resist coming in at this angle. It's New York Times with this wonderful picture of, uh, well, this is Western, greeting now, Mike, we should try it more often. Um, What's the actual headline? Lord, (laughs) Lord, Lloyd Austin is confirmed becoming the first black defense secretary in US history. And of course, this is making sort of big waves through the media because he's a black man. So what does the BBC have to say? Well. Um, There's the title, uh, Lloyd Austin, Biden picks ex-general as defence secretary. This is, of course, very big news. Um, They say quite a lot in the article, but this is one of the key things. But the nomination could draw criticism from some progressive groups over General Austin's position in recent years as a member of the board of directors of defence contractor Raytheon an opposition from uh, lawmakers in Congress who favor a clear civilian control of the Pentagon. Now, we'll explain uh, why this has come about, what the limitation is, but uh, what we can see is, is, of course, people coming straight out of the military into those defense contractors, and in this case, hopping straight back into a prime government role.
1: No conflict of interest there.
0: No conflict of interest there at all. So this is the limitation, the required congressional waiver is that you must be out of the military for over seven years but he's been granted uh, that waiver although it's only been granted twice most recently in the case of james mattis the retired marine general who served as president donald trump's first defense secretary so shock horror they should have followed the uh, precedence with trump there but uh, let's follow on through so austin oversaw the largest logistical operation undertaken by the army in six decades the Iraq drawdown. I think that means withdrawal, but uh, the Iraq drawdown. So why is this important? Well, let's give you the real news. This is because uh, uh, apparently Mr. Biden wrote that the next Secretary of Defense will need to immediately quarterback an enormous logistics operation to help distribute COVID-19 vaccines widely and equitably. So you want this uh, general who specialized in a massive logistics operation to draw down in Iraq. You need him now on the job in the US because he's gonna be helping with those COVID uh, jabs. So let's have a look, because the BBC put up a very uh, wonderful picture of the two men talking. We were able to get an exclusive on what was being said here. So Mr. Biden said, so you're in, but I just have to check the details with President Kamala and her civil rights groups. Yes, I did say that correctly. I just have to check the details with President Kamala and her civil rights groups. And don't worry, the Reverend uh, Al Sharpton has said that your appointment as Defence Secretary is a step in the right direction, but not the end of the walk. Uh, well, the general had a response. He said, don't worry your pretty little ass, creepy Joe, I'll get the COVID-19 vaccine into the US public whether they want it or not. And he added a bit, he'd already taken care of the most important defence policy issue. Now, David, uh, I'd like to just ask you unfairly live on air if you might guess what the uh, critical defence issue is in the United States, but luckily it's been taken care of.
2: Well, I'm, I would guess it's, uh, it's administered COVID vaccine and this is the very man, this is the man you want. This is a wonderful appointment by the Biden healthcare team because. When he left the military, he also went on the board of Fortune 500 company Tenant Healthcare Corporation. And even more good news, and we like good news, since since the start of uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, um, the share price of Tenant Healthcare Corporation has increased from $10 a share to over $50 a share. Isn't that good news?
0: well it is good news and we always welcome it when people can benefit out of a pandemic it's uh, it's good business so what was the real issue aside from delivery of uh, vaccines in us uh, let's have a look at what he said he'd already dealt with uh, and it's the subject of uh, transgender uh, so here we are um Biden to drop Trump's military transgender ban And the general was uh, straight in uh, commenting that he said he supported the plan. And this is the actual report in the paper. So this isn't an error of the UK column. I support the plan or plan to overturn the transgender ban. So that's the most important thing to get transgender people into the American military. And apparently all four service chiefs told Congress in 2018 that they'd seen no discipline, morale or unit readiness problems with transgender troops serving openly in the military. But they did acknowledge that some commanders were spending a lot of time with transgender individuals who were working through medical requirements and other quote, transition issues. So I'm gonna label this, that uh, this is in the midst of the COVID pandemic chaos and a new president. The US military is rushing through the drive to intersectionality. That's the political agenda. Let's swap to uh, Boris, uh, because um, the Daily Mail here telling us that Boris Johnson is to give Liz Truss a more senior government role as he plans to promote a raft of female ministers in a cabinet reshuffle. So very important uh, that the ladies are now coming into the administration. I'm really pleased to see that they're wearing some particularly sharp outfits. Um, But what is this about? Well, this is in the midst of the um, COVID pandemic, the Conservatives are bringing in intersectionality. So what we've got to pay attention for is this underlying political agenda. If you don't know what intersectionality is, have a little look on the internet because it's everywhere. I chose womankind worldwide. They'd got a very good description. It's an interlinking of all the things uh, that can cause problems in the way we think about other individuals. Uh, so this is their paragraph definition. Put simply, intersectionality is the concept that all oppression is linked. More explicit, explicitly, the Oxford Dictionary defines intersectionality as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, gender regarded as creating overlapping and independent systems of discrimination or advantage. So this has now become priority. Um, We're going to see more and more of this coming into UK uh, and the US, and uh, this is going to drive the agenda, never mind defending uh, continental US against the uh, nasty Chinese and the Russians. So uh, what has uh, Boris uh, been adding to this? Well, here's his Twitter. And I couldn't resist this one. Uh, he said, great to speak to President Joe Biden this evening. I look forward to deepening the long-standing alliance between our two countries as we drive a green and sustainable recovery from COVID-19, which mm-hmm. ties in nicely with your Davos opening, Mike. So um, really, uh, the conversation was a bit different. Yep, creepy Joe. So the UK public is to be told we just don't have a real answer for this incredibly dangerous mutating COVID-19 virus. So stay in lockdown at home and let us get on with the real work of a green and sustainable recovery. Yeah, yeah, they're all stupid. Let's cull them. I'm pretty confident that's what was said, but possibly he didn't say okay. that. So he added this with a tweet that we vaccinated over 5.8 million people in the UK with a record 478 no, do- sorry, 478,000 doses given in a single day yesterday. So every jab brings us closer to defeating the virus, although we've clearly shown in this news today, Mike, that's not true. Um, so presumably, um, when we're called forward to go into the safety of the camps, people will just come forward because we can trust him. And if that's not bad enough, I'm just going to add that uh, this man, uh, Gordon Brown has been called forward. So the country's virtually on its knees socially and in an economic sense under uh, the COVID so-called pandemic. So we're bringing in a man who uh, previously wrecked the country, but the BBC is very, very pleased uh, because uh, Gordon Brown has said that trust has broken down in the way the UK has run. I'm amazed that they've had to find that out from Gordon Brown. Uh, So what's Gordon been saying? He said the pandemic has brought to the surface tensions and grievances that have been simmering for years between Downing Street and the various parts of the UK. He says that he thinks the public are fed up. I think in many ways they feel they're being treated as second-class citizens, particularly in outlying areas that they are invisible and forgotten. Uh, But he's calling on Boris Johnson to immediately set up a commission on democracy to review how the UK is governed... um, sorry, to review how the UK is governed, something the Conservatives promised in their manifesto before the last general election. Now, I've labelled him as the former failed UK Prime Minister, which is, I think, pretty accurate. We also would like to know from Gordon where our gold reserves went, because, of course, he sold those off. But the BBC here uh, are telling us very clearly that, uh, that Mr Brown is advising the Labour Party on its devolution strategy. And he's held talks with government ministers, including Michael Gove in recent weeks. So David, um, I've got to say, with a little bit of a sting in the tail, that Gordon Brown, I think, comes from north of the border. So maybe uh, we should point a little bit of responsibility at his efforts to the Scottish uh, population. But uh, he's been brought into the mix in order to solve all of our problems by saying we're going to rethink the whole way the country is governed. Does this bring you any sort of confidence?
2: Gordon Brown has never brought me any sort of confidence. And and it's quite unfair of you trying to apply collective responsibility and (laughs) blaming, blaming us for Gordon. And, right, because if you start that, somebody will point out that Blair, despite the fact that he tried very hard to pretend to be English, was in fact born in Scotland and in fact educated in Scotland and we are somehow responsible for him too. This is too much for any small nation to bear so I would appreciate you not going there. Um, the, um, com- a commission of democracy, is he kidding me on? If we want a real commission in democracy, what we should do is watch the UK Column series, The Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, where a half or maybe only a third of the way through considering in some detail, the problems of democracy. And the problems mean that the people in far from parts of the UK, or indeed in parts of the UK just around the corner from Westminster, are not second-class citizens, right? They're lucky if they're fourth-class citizens. That's the problem with democracy, and that's one that they will not be addressing.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. And, uh, and uh, I realised I might have been a little bit harsh on the Scottish nation. However, it does provide a nice little uh, segue, a little link into uh, what's been happening into Scotland, uh, what's been happening in Scotland and indeed with um, Nippy, I think.
2: Yeah, we don't need Brian, we don't need you to be harsh on the Scottish nation. That's what you've got me for. Now, <laughs> on to the Herald. And you've also this week got Ian McWhorter doing this. Um, right. So the, the theme for the week is fish, um, uh, salmon and sturgeon. And uh, also, Ian McQuirter writes, like a fish, Scotland's Crown Office is rotting from the head down. Um, so he writes here, uh, 14 million, 20 million, 24 million. The eye-watering and damage has been awarded to the administrators wrongly prosecuted for fraud over the Rangers, that's the Glasgow Rangers Football Club, bankruptcy, seems to grow larger by the day. It's reliably important. It reported that the two men, Paul Clark and David Whitehouse, have already banked 10 million apiece, 10 million each. Uh, the various legal uh, fees are, are now going to take the total bill up to around 24 million, but it gets worse. The Lord Advocate himself, James Wolfe QC, will shortly make a public apology to the two men for having pursued a, quote, malicious prosecution against them quote, without probable cause, end quote. Malicious note, not just mistaken in law or based on unreliable evidence, but acting with malice, the intention of personally injuring two innocent citizens. Forget reputational damage to the Crown Office, this is reputational obliteration. What were we saying last week? The Crown Office is organized crime. Uh, Now, he continues on um, uh, looking at the Sturgeon case. when uh, Linda Fabiani, who's heading the inquiry into the uh, salmon um, affair, where Salmond uh, was taken to uh, an internal, um, to an internal disciplinary process, essentially found guilty by the Scottish government, challenged it at law, and the government's case collapsed within a day, uh, and then Salmond had to be awarded uh, 500,000 pounds in legal costs, that scandal. Uh, You've got to be specific as to which scandal we're talking about. The the committee looking into that um, wrote asking for information to the Scottish, to the Crown Office. The Crown Office wrote back saying there was no legal basis for this request uh, and that releasing witness witness statements would leave a significant risk that this would undermine public confidence in both the police and the Crown Office. And McWhirter writes, you might think it would be hard for public confidence to be undermined any further than it already has been. Um, and he continues here. He said that the Crown Office has also threatened Alex Salmon with prosecution if he released any of the incriminating material that he himself has seen during his judicial review. So that, that it's clear that there's a cover-up. I mean, we're not even covering up the cover-up anymore. Such as the banana republic nature of Scotland uh, under the SNP, um, and the prosecutors and senior politicians are in an incestuous embrace. There's evasion and lack of transparency. And he concludes: I feel there's a culture of collusion and cover-up. And I believe there's an ethical void at the prosecution service. This is intolerable in a democracy. I'm not too sure about that. And ample evidence that the crown office is not fit for purpose. That is that is quite correct. So the crown office, run by um, uh, Mr. Wolf QC, who is who sits at the cabinet, is a political appointee, and he sits at the cabinet table with Nicola Sturgeon. She, he runs uh, both the all prosecution in Scotland and also provides services and legal services to the state, to the government. So it's the state's own lawyer that prosecutes people in Scotland, uh, which is an appalling situation and uh, an obvious invitation to political control of the prosecutorial. prosecutorial. Uh,
0: So just a corrupt, effectively a corrupt state under the SNP um, with no separation of the powers uh, of powers at all, so the one police force fully integrated um, with that judicial system. So this is a dictatorship north of the a corrupt the, dictatorship north of it, the border, David.
2: That's correct. A corrupt dictatorship is the correct way of describing it. There are no checks, there are no balances, and it's being applied without even a hint of of um, of concern for the public or of humility. It's being been, it's been applied with arrogance uh, and a, a kind of power hungry tone that is Stalinist in its style. Uh, that's what we're living with. But there are one or two reasons to be he- cheerful. Um, the Scotsman here reports with Sam Inquiry why any witnesses who lie to the MSPs should be worried. And the reason is that they're, they're operating under oath, and the Scottish Parliament has confirmed. That if a witness gives evidence under oath which they know to be false or do not believe to be true, they are committing a criminal offence with a maximum prison term of five years. So we'll see if anyone goes to jail.
1: Um, Okay, well, we've got to end. But uh, David, let's end with uh, your cartoon here.
2: Beautiful cartoon. So here we see the Scott of the Antarctic Oates is saying, I'm just going outside. I may be some time and he's he's only just left the tent, and Scott turns around and says, call the police.
1: Call the police. We're in a lockdown.
0: Curfew, Mike. I think we've we've got to get rid of this lockdown term and call it curfew. David, thank you very much for joining us today. Fascinating to know what's going on north of the border. Uh, What a perilous state the UK is in. What can we do about it? Uh, we need to push out the facts, the truth, about what's really happening with COVID. And we need to watch our government like a hawk to see the policies and agendas that it's putting into place under the smoke screen of the so-called COVID pandemic. So we're gonna do our best to help keep your eye on what is happening there. Are we doing an extra? I, I'm very happy to do an extra if uh, David is free for an extra. Yep. He's nodding, so we will be doing an extra after the news. Uh, we'll say thank you to everyone for joining us, and I'm going to keep pushing out a very big thank you to all the people who are now uh, uh, becoming viewers and listeners to UK Column from from overseas. We know that our overseas audience is really growing, and as, as always, a big thank you to the people in the United States because it seems that we are sharing this uh, common political dictatorship at the mm-hmm. moment. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye.